evidence and answers. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Recently, Pat held his first ever Zoom apologetics conference entitled Truth, Finding Clarity in Confusing Times. Guest speakers included Kirby Anderson, Fazal Rana, Randy Manley, and our own Pat Zukran. In today's broadcast, we will be listening to our second session of the three question and answer sessions that were offered. Well, hello, everyone. I uh, hope you enjoyed the terrific lineup of speakers that you had today. And we're going into one of our most enjoyable times, the Q&A session here. And we're, so we're going to try to answer as many questions as we can. If your question doesn't get answered, we're going to answer it on a future radio show. So be listening. All right. So we're going to answer as many as we can right away. First, we're going to start with Kirby. Kirby, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there about things like coronavirus, such as Bill Gates is the mastermind seeking to place microchips in vaccines, or it's Walt Disney, or the Illuminati, or George Soros, or a communist plot to take over America. Should we take any of these seriously? And if so, how would we know which one? That's very good. Uh, first of all, let's just mention that, you know, you didn't mention one of QAnon. That's another one that's surfacing as well. And first of all, one of the things I said during the media presentation is read widely. If something sounds too good to be true, probably too good to be true. If something sounds like it's very easily dismissed, it probably is. And so, first of all, one of the ways in which you can show some discernment with conspiracy theories is to say, if this was really true, why isn't, and then fill in the blank, covering this? You know, and there are some really good articles that have appeared in uh, everything from Christianity Today, as well as in World Magazine and others. So first of all, I think you would don't want to get ex information you can get from various scholars that have looked at some of those. And then you might also do a uh, Google search and say, okay, what has Kirby Anderson said about this? What has Moody Broadcasting said about this? What has American Family Radio said about this? What has Pat uh, Zucrin said about this? And so um, are there conspiracies? Well, if there are, most of them are pretty open conspiracies and they've been around for some time and they're pretty well known, for example. We can talk about Planned Parenthood, their desire to apply some of the principles we talked about just a minute ago with Dr. Rana uh, to um, kind of the survival of the fittest. But most of these conspiracy theories that are making the rounds right now don't have a lot of credibility. And again, all you have to do is go to some people that you have identified as trusted sources uh, to begin to dismiss a lot of them. So that's a quick answer for that. This one's for Dr. Fuzz Rana. How do your opponents refute your cause for intelligent design? After hearing all this info regarding intelligent design, how do the atheists seek to refute these kinds of arguments? Yeah, that's a, a great uh, question. And I'll point out that in my experience, nobody denies that there is, a, that the universe that we live in, the local universe that we're a part of had a beginning. Nobody denies the fine tuning of the constants of physics. Nobody denies that the earth appears to be a rare place. Uh, nobody denies the appearance of design in biology and in biochemical systems. And, and, and many of the statements that I presented, the quotes from scientists were quotes from scientists who are atheists, who are not friendly to the Christian faith. 
So the, the question here is not a question of evidence. It's really a question largely of, of worldview. How do you explain that design? And really, there's two options. Either that design somehow is produced through some kind of natural process mechanism, or that design is the work of a mind. And so there might be atheists who would say, well, uh, yes, indeed, there's design in the universe, but that, but that we're part of a multiverse where there's a near infinite number of universes, and we just happen to be in that lucky universe, you know, where all the constants line up in such a way for life to be possible. Or people might uh, try to argue, well, that design that we see in biology is the product of some kind of evolutionary process. In a sense, these responses are largely driven by philosophical pre-commitments more so than anything else. They're not really driven by evidence. There's, for example, when we talk about the design in biochemistry, this is the origin of life problem. And I didn't address that this evening, but we do, nobody knows how life could have originated through evolutionary mechanisms. The people that have devoted their entire lives as scientists to study the origin of life and the origin of biochemistry readily admit that we have no understanding how life originates. But yet these very same scientists are absolutely convinced there must be some kind of evolutionary route. So that conviction is largely driven by philosophical and worldview pre-commitments. It's not actually driven by the evidence at, at hand. Everybody agrees that the evidence suggests design in the universe. The question is, who is that designer? Is it an impersonal force or is it the mind of, of, of a creator? And so the, I guess the larger point I would make is that as Christians, the reason why we hopefully embrace our faith is that we do see very powerful evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We've encountered the person of Christ and have experienced Christ. And so we have very good reasons to think that God exists and that the evidence from science supports that. And so we shouldn't be concerned if there are people with different worldviews that try to account for that design out of their worldview commitment. But at the end of the day, I think the best explanation is the work of a mind when you put all of the evidence together. That's a great answer. Kirby, this next one's for you. It's actually an observation, but I'm going to turn it into a question. Sure. Kyle writes that 90% of the nation's media is owned by the six large umbrella corporations. So in such a way, they set the narrative for us to feed on or to divide us. Is that scenario correct? And is the big media companies owned by uh, large corporations who set the agenda? Well, let me make the argument even more stronger because when you talk about big tech, in some respects, they dominate a great deal as well. And so that's one of the reasons why I think we need to read widely because you will get sources of information. And even though it seems like they will control the narrative, it depends. Let's take a good example. Wall Street Journal, for example, of the editorial page tends to be fairly conservative. But the Wall Street Journal per se, in terms of their stories, not so much. So let's take a couple of people that we would know, people that work in the area of religious liberty. That would be Alliance Defending Freedom, First Liberty Institute, Americans, actually, I should be the, the Center for Legal Issues and some of those, and the Christian Legal Society. They have found that lots of times there'll be an editorial that will support them 
on the Wall Street Journal, but they've had difficulty getting on the page. Fox News, sometimes that's the case. Very easy for some of them to get on with uh, Shannon Bream or Sean McDowell. Very difficult to get on with some of the others. So even within an organization, there is a fairly significant amount of flexibility, but it's a good illustration as to why just because the Wall Street Journal says it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to accept it or the Washington Post. I noticed one of the things there, somebody was saying, well, um, people have bought out Google. Well, Jeff Bezos has bought out the Wall Washington Post. Does that mean the Washington Post is always biased? Does it mean the Washington Post always gets it wrong? No, but it's, I think, a good reason for why you really just need to read a little bit more, check things out, and compare what some news organizations are covering and what other ones are covering and ask some good questions. I mean, after all, we need to have discernment. That's kind of the theme tonight, isn't it? Yes, it is, indeed. Well, it's Rana. This question comes from Pac, a retired engineer. Harry says, uh, thank you for your talk. Could you please define what science is when the world talks about the conflicts between science and God, not faith? What aspects of science and of God are they talking about? The idea of what is science is, is an incredibly complex philosophical discussion. You know, if, if you, yeah, but, you know, in, in a nutshell, as a scientist, the way I think about science or what defines science is that it's essentially the method of science where you, you know, you, you make observations uh, or you perform experiments and you have a set of results and that you then try to formulate some kind of theory or hypothesis or model to explain those results, and then you develop a set of predictions that flow out of that model that are logical entailments of that model, and then you evaluate those predictions in light of future discoveries. And uh, if the discoveries match the model, the model's predictions, then you feel growing comfort for the credibility of the model. And of course, if those predictions are not satisfied, it means that the model either needs to be abandoned or revised. So to me, the scientific methodology is really what defines science. Uh, Now, in the world that we live in today, in addition to the methodology that defines science, there's another feature that people will tack on to that, which is a, a philosophical framework for how science is to operate. And this is called methodological naturalism. And that's a a $25 word that simply means that when you engage in science, you you operate as if God doesn't exist. That whether you believe in God or not, operationally, when you engage in science, you function as if uh, God doesn't exist. Sometimes this is called benchtop atheism or provisional atheism. And and so, you know, I think most people are familiar with philosophical naturalism, which says there is no such thing as God. The only thing that exists is the physical material universe. And so in methodological naturalism, what you're doing is you're importing that philosophical framework into the operation of science and saying, again, as a practitioner of science, you cannot ever evoke the work of a creator to account for the universe or any feature in the universe, regardless of whether or not the evidence actually supports that. And so it's this philosophical framework that actually, I think, for many people, is the source of the the perceived conflict between science and faith. Because what happens is people are functioning as atheists 
whether they believe in God or not, when they do science, if they embrace methodological naturalism. And, and methodological naturalism would say, well, again, there's no way we could evoke God as an explanation. Therefore, there, is no, there can be no scientific evidence for God. Science doesn't indicate that God exists. And then many people will go one step further and say, well, in fact, science actually demonstrates to us that God isn't even necessary. That, yeah, indeed, the universe has a beginning, but I can posit this quantum foam to explain the beginning of the universe. Or there's design in the universe, and I can appeal to a multiverse. Or, you know, I see design in biology. Well, evolution created that design. And so, therefore, God isn't necessary. And so, hence, science demonstrates uh, there, there's no need for God. And that's where many people see that, that conflict. So it's really a conflict driven by this commitment to methodological naturalism. And, and so for me, it's really important for Christians to recognize that this is, this is actually the framework for science. And, and, and some of the, the philosophers of science who I have enormous amount of respect for, people like uh, J.P. Moreland, William Lane Craig, uh, Steve Meyer, at the Discovery Institute have done a masterful job of actually showing the philosophical uh, bias of science and, and have demonstrated that you could actually produce a philosophy for science that allows for intelligent design. And once you allow that framework in place, suddenly you see that the, the scientific evidence actually points very clearly to, to the work and the handiwork of a creator. You know, one quick point and then I'll stop. And that is, you know, I find it fascinating because when I read and interact with origin of life researchers, time and time and time again, they will say, we have no idea how life originates. In fact, they will say something to this effect that you could actually be forgiven if you would say that life appears to be miraculous. But we are, we're not going to go down that path because in science, we only pursue natural process mechanistic explanations. Therefore, we're going to reject the idea of a creator, but it's a philosophical rejection. It's not evidence-based. So it's really this influence of methodological naturalism, because you can formulate scientific hypotheses that incorporate intelligent design into them that can be testable, that do make predictions, that can be evaluated just like any other scientific idea. Yes, you can always count on this guy, Tack for asking the difficult questions. Kirby, next one's for you. Since leading media outlets, CNN, MSNBC, Twitter, Facebook, censors and curates right of center content under the guise of preventing fake news, how do we get the message of truth across to the public at large? Yes, well, again, it brings us back to the fact that, you know, even though big tech is trying to do what it can to maybe narrow us down a little bit. I think what we are starting to see is the internet still provides that opportunity. And uh, there is an opportunity for you if you go out there and begin to search for it. Uh, as somebody pointed out, you know, obviously Google searches don't always pop up the first uh, thing. If you're talking about the issue of intelligent design, for example, they're not going to necessarily get Dr. Rhonda's first article. But if you start looking, you'll find it because the reality is we just have so many great opportunities today because of the internet. And so I think that's one of the issues. How we get it out? Well, again, Pat, you and I have been doing radio for a long time, you know, and so we do have an opportunity to get those ideas out there. And that's one of the things that you know, having been on point of view with me, and I know you do that with some of your broadcasts and evidence and answers, everything's on the table. 
I get the sense sometimes there's a memo that even goes around some of the more conservative uh, shows saying, well, you're not going to talk about this, uh, homosexuality, like you're going to be talking about tomorrow. We'll talk about transgenderism. We're not going to talk about the Federal Reserve. We're not going to talk about, you know, a variety of other things. They just sort of keep away from those. And so that's why I think you have to just keep looking. But we've got some pretty large megaphones anymore in the Christian world. So let's just keep getting those out there. And uh, truth will win. I'm convinced of it. Yes, Kirby, I guess to follow up with that, uh, there's a question. I switched it here so our audience here can see you guys answering questions. Where does Fox News rank uh, among the major news networks? Would you consider them the most trustworthy news outlet there? Well, and even Fox News, you, you have some variability. Let's face it, you know, Sean Hannity, no, no one doubts he's a conservative. When Shepard Smith was there, did anybody doubt that he was a liberal? No. Okay, so you're going to get some variability there. But back to the point, um, in my presentation tonight, I mentioned the work by Tim Grossclose, and he's now at George Mason University, but at the time when he was at UCLA, he rated Fox being one of the more favorable kinds of opportunities, as illustrated by the fact that you tune it in, do you hear both sides? Much more than you do on MSNBC or CNN or even PBS. Now, have you and I been on some of those programs? Yes, I've been on PBS before and there are opportunities, but I think there is a sense in which there's a little more of an open-handed fairness and you have to recognize that there's a difference between, say, news programs, which Brett Bear would cover or even Chris Wallace would cover, compared to obviously commentators like Sean Hannity or a variety of others. And so, you, you understand that when you go in, but I, I, nothing else. I think they seem to be more fair. The study that was done by Tim Grossclose used to say that Drudge was pretty fair, which is not really a news outlet as much as it is an aggregator. But I think more and more people have said that if nothing else, Drudge has become real anti-Trump, which doesn't necessarily make it liberal, but it's certainly some of the articles that get featured are, are showing up in that regard. So anyway, Fox News fits into something. It's a lot more fair. And you can illustrate that by the fact that oftentimes you'll see a, a liberal and a conservative, a Republican and a Democrat. And those are the kinds of things you don't always see on some of the other talk shows. Yes, and I think uh, you brought up the point, you know, the answer is not just to watch Fox News. <laughs> you got to do research and a lot of reading in a lot of different areas. Fuzz Rana, here's one for you. It says, uh, you talk about intelligent design. How do you explain dinosaurs and hominids and other species that God created and then went extinct? Seems more like God is experimenting and seeing what works and what doesn't. Yeah, well, that's a, a great question. And, and I'll just point out that, you know, when we look at the uh, creation accounts that we see in Scripture, we, we need to recognize that these creation accounts are not meant to be scientific treatises, uh, but rather these are uh, theologically driven passages of Scripture that are establishing the fact that there is a creator who is responsible for bringing everything that we see into existence. And so even when we look at a passage like Genesis 1 or another creation account that I, that I love to read is Psalm 104, these are essentially highlights of God's creative activities. These are snapshots of, of what God has done as creator that are organized, I believe, chronologically in a historical fashion, but they are by their very nature, scientifically incomplete or historically incomplete, but they are theologically complete uh, passages of Scripture. So there's going to be a lot of things that we discover as, as we investigate the world of nature, as we investigate the history of the earth, the history of life on earth, 
that scripture is simply going to be silent about. But just because we see a history of life on earth doesn't necessarily mean that God is tinkering or, create, or playing around and trying things that don't work and then, and then retooling things and trying something differently. But rather, we could see a pro- progressive purposefulness to creation where God is creating different life forms at different times in earth's history to accomplish what is needed uh, under those conditions of the earth. And that as the history of the earth progressive, progresses, the conditions are changing, and God is introducing new life forms uh, into the earth at those particular times. You know, when, when you read Psalm 104, which is a, a creation ac- account as well, it's a creation psalm where the, the creator is being praised for his work as creator. But Psalm 104 is structured to parallel Genesis 1. It's a fun exercise to read Psalm 104 in light of Genesis 1. But with Psalm 104, what the, the psalmist is doing is uh, when it, he describes God's work as creator on a particular day of creation, many times he's reflecting backward as to what the earth was like before the creator engaged in his work as creator, and then what happened as a consequence of that. So there's like this progressive purposefulness to the creation sequence that we see in Psalm 104. And that, to me, indicates that when we look at the history of life on earth, we really need to see it through that lens, that there is an overarching purpose, and that purpose is ultimately to create human beings as the crown of creation, where the conditions of the earth are suitable for human beings to have a great place to live, that everything that God is doing is leading up to that. You know, and so I don't see the hominins or dinosaurs as, as failed creations, but rather a part of the creation that is setting the stage for the advent of humanity. I take an old earth creationist position, not to create uh, the young earth, old earth debate here in the conference, but uh, for me, uh, I, dinosaurs, uh, you know, appear on Earth about 260 million years ago and disappear about 65 million years ago. So from my perspective, they were on Earth 200 million years. It's hard to argue that that reflects a failed experiment, right, <laughs> for life to be present and to be dominant for that period of time. Uh, and I see that as part of the artistry of the creator as well, that when you look at the history of life on Earth, there's also this artistry. That, that you see uh, being revealed. Great. I think we're going to try to get three more in here before Dave closes us here. But Kirby, as a questionnaire, how do you combat instant gratification and disconnection? Oh, yeah, that is difficult uh, because one of the things we teach in economics, and I didn't mention my economics book, is the idea of delayed gratification, the Protestant work ethic, and those kinds of things. And the sad reality is, is that we need to, first of all, model it for our kids. And as I pointed out just a minute ago, everything is instant right now. If somebody right now says, I want to order a book, it doesn't take anything. I just go out there on Amazon and I order it and I don't think twice. And so if anything, uh, we are going to have to uh, focus on Psalm 46. We're going to have to focus on Psalm 23. We're going to have to talk about the importance in our churches and at our home uh, to be patient and to be still and know that he is God. Uh, Those are going to be things that we need to talk about around the dinner table. We need to find some teachable moments when maybe the internet goes down and say, no, maybe this is a good idea. Maybe we need to disconnect one night and say, 
no video games. Now we will play a game. We'll take out a monopoly game or something like that, but we're not going to, we're going to have a digital free night and we're going to try to do what we can to fight this instant gratification, this idea that everything has to be done at a moment's notice. And so I think that starts with us. We have to be good parents and grandparents and really model that first of all. I left out a slide in the slides there about a father who's on his phone while there's a kid underneath playing with a uh, iPad, you know, and how many times have we seen that? You go into a restaurant right now, is anybody talking to anybody? Everybody's looking at their phone. Sometimes you got four millennials there and all of them are on their phone, not even talking to each other. Matter of fact, they're faxing back and forth, they're texting back and forth on their phones. And so we need to just change that mindset. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm so glad that you had me talk tonight about this digital world that is changing our world, not necessarily always for the better. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, Head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, 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 hey.